Well, let's let's get to some of your work in particular. Like I said, the title of this book is The Booming Baritone Bell of England by E.G. Romine. I highly recommend the listener pick up a copy. Mm-hmm. This is part of the Monographs and Baptist History series. And the subtitle is The Pedagogy and Practice of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Open-Air Preaching. So why this topic for your dissertation? Well, essentially, uh, when I started studying for my MDiv, my Master of Divinity, um, I met a young man who was in the college of the school. So he was doing his undergrad at the college at Southwestern. Um, I was doing my Master of Divinity degree in Biblical Languages at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And um, when we met, we bonded over theology and enjoying listening to similar preachers and uh, one of the things that he said to me is, Ed, I do a lot of street evangelism. His name's Taylor Cowan. Uh, Taylor said, I do a lot of street evangelism. Would you be interested in coming out with me? And I said, well, no, I don't think that'd be good for me because uh, I'd be a burden on somebody having to push me around all the time in my manual wheelchair. You know what that's like, Skyler. You've done it. <laughs> and uh, and <clears throat> Taylor said, well, if you want to come, I don't mind pushing you. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. So we went to the Dallas Cowboys football game at AT&T Stadium, and he did not tell me that he was going to do this, but he – Ended up putting a mic on me, a headset mic, and said, okay, I want you to preach the gospel. I thought to myself, this is not what I agreed to, but okay. (laughs) And so I did it. I was nervous, very nervous. My first time ever doing open-air preaching, I had that guy that was tailgating drunk get up in my face, and Mm -hmm. I, I could smell the beer emanating off of him. And uh, I don't think drinking beer is necessarily bad. Just don't don't lose your faculties. Don't be don't be drunk. But he had definitely had too much to drink, and he thought he'd make a sport of the guy in the wheelchair trying to preach. So that was my baptism by fire and uh, open air preaching. Uh, uh, there have been very few instances open-air preaching since that have been that intense. And uh, the first time was very uncomfortable, partly because of the drunkie. But uh, after that, I started developing a love for uh, open-air preaching and street evangelism in general, just passing out gospel tracts and cards and getting into conversations with people and and uh, I'd already been convinced of the doctrines of grace by this point, and I'd already knew of Spurgeon, and I found out through uh, reading Spurgeon's writing, he was a proponent and a practitioner of open-air preaching, Um, a proponent in the sense that he taught others how to preach, pedagogy, the art, art of teaching, and then... Uh, he not only taught others open air preaching, but he also did it himself. Hence, pedagogy and practice of open air preaching. So that's the genesis of it, the beginnings of it, and um, essentially, my work has three parts to it. The first two chapters are introductory matters. The first chapter is Basically, every academic dissertation has uh, this. It's basically a review of the literature, what's been done up to your contribution. 
and showing why your work is an actual contribution to the academy. And so I uh, reviewed the literature, state my thesis in that opening chapter, and my thesis is essentially, you can read it word for word if you want to, but my thesis essentially is that Spurgeon's pedagogy and practice of open-air preaching is the impetus for why he was such a great preacher in the pulpit. So in a sense, Spurgeon, the open-air preacher, never left when he got into the pulpit. He was always cross-centered. Why? Well, it's because he had a conviction of preaching the cross to sinners. And that's shown chiefly in his practice of open-air preaching and in his commendation of open-air preaching to others. So that's essentially uh, the first chapter in a nutshell. The second chapter delves into um, the background of Victorian England. We talked a lot about that already in the first episode. (coughs) Dealing with the religious demographic of Victorian England with the established church, the three dissenting or nonconformist church denominations, and really how Spurgeon felt about the three of them. Obviously, he believed one was the most right. He was a Baptist. And so we talked a little bit about that already. The third chapter is setting a foundation for Spurgeon's theology of evangelism. So in that chapter, as I mentioned last time, I go through and I show from his expositions, not his sermons, but his expositions, how he is a a solid Christology in the Old Testament, uh, mainly throughout allegory, seeing Christ in all of Scripture. And then in the New Testament, showing off his theology of evangelism, how he believed the New Testament promoted the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you've got the introductory material in the first chapter, every dissertation ever, regardless of the field, has to have a literature review in it and stating why you're contributing. Second chapter deals with Spurgeon's cultural context. He didn't preach in a vacuum. He preached in the midst of history happening. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, looking at his hermeneutical approach. So those are the three foundational chapters. I think I said two. I meant three. Is those first three chapters. Chapters uh, four and five, the meat of the dissertation, and they follow the order of the subtitle. Chapter 4, I look at the pedagogy of Spurgeon's open-air preaching, how he taught it to others, both in the sermonic context and in the classroom context. He has two lectures on open-air preaching, the first being open-air preaching, a sketch of its history, and then the second being open-air preaching, remarks thereon. And the sketch of its history is exactly what it sounds like. He starts in Old Testament times showing how Noah was a preacher of righteousness, uh, showing how all the prophets were preachers of righteousness and goodness and proclaimed the oracles of God. And then he moves on to Jesus himself in the New Testament and John the Baptist, who were preachers in the open air. Uh, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus preached, like, for example, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, he did that along the seashore, which is undoubtedly outside. I don't know anybody that keeps a seashore in their (laughs) church building. Uh, That'd be pretty cool. But, you know, that hasn't happened. So it was undoubtedly outside. In the book of Acts, a lot of the preaching that was not done in synagogue was done outside. Think about Mars Hill, right? The Sermon on the Mount 
of Jesus. Most famous sermon ever. Um, very much in the open air. Um, and then he goes on from there to recount preaching done in the early church, um, more broadly the medieval church as well, which I find so interesting. Um, this is, might be in my book, but it's definitely in Matthew Barrett's. Uh, it's been a while. It's been a few years since I wrote my book. So uh, sometimes things get fuzzy. But in the medieval times, the Dominican clan of Catholics, regularly Roman Catholics, regularly practiced open-air preaching. And people, people don't think about that, but that's that's the case. So, uh, Rome herself has a history of preaching in the open air in the medieval times, <laughs> uh, pre-reformational times. Uh, you've got uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic friars that were preaching in the open air. Uh, Spurgeon quotes a historian by the name of Wiley. And he uh, goes into that and uh, relies heavily upon Wiley uh, for his research in this lecture. And then one of the things that I do throughout a sketch of its history, for whatever reason, in the lectures to my students, the sources are not cited. In other lectures, he does give footnote references to the books he's using. But for this particular reference, for whatever reason, there isn't any. So one of my contributions is providing all the footnotes. So I track down every source that Spurgeon quoted from just wow. about. Wow. Uh, if you look carefully at the footnotes of that chapter. So pre-Reformational, you've got Catholic friars, Roman Catholic friars that are preaching the gospel of grace in the open air. Uh, the, the those in charge didn't like it much, apparently. Then Spurgeon makes this claim. He said that the Reformation was reared about on the back of open-air preaching. And he goes into all that, and you can read about that, really fascinating stuff. And then he um, uh, goes into the 17th century, 18th century, Shows how there's been circuit preachers of the Methodists and others um, that have always had a tradition of open air preaching. And then he goes up to his current day all the way to the 19th century. And he's showing his students that there needs to be a retrieval of the art of open air preaching because it's always been in Christ Church's history. <laughs> and so Spurgeon, I think makes a good case for that. The second um, uh, chapter, that's the meat in chapter 5, deals with the practice of open-air preaching. And, and with that uh, comes with it the second lecture on remarks their own. Remarks their own and the back half of the last chapter is just what it sounds like. It's how to do it. So I go through and I analyze all that uh, to varying degrees. And it's stuff as simple as, you know, preach with the wind. Don't preach against the wind. Make sure you don't scream at the top of your lungs because nobody will listen to a screeching preacher. You know, that sort of thing just... Extremely practical. Yeah, tents are bad. Yes. He doesn't like tents. Yep, he doesn't. Like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's funny to me. Tell us how you really feel. Yeah, yeah. Tents yeah. are bad. That's yep. A, yep. And unutterably then, bad. Yep. And then in, in the next chapter with the practice, you see him living out remarks their own. <laughs> um, and in that one, I do two things. I, I show in his autobiography where he recounts remembering preaching in the open air. And then I go after the three sermons uh, 
that are in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Bicker Set. And my favorite sermon is uh, Numbers 39 and 40, Heaven and Hell. <laughs> and that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, part one of the sermon is on heaven. Part two of the sermon is on hell. And uh, I just absolutely love that sermon. And then uh, I analyzed the, the other two sermons as well. And then I compare those three sermons and their evangelistic appeals with five sermons uh, from his pulpit ministry. And uh, honestly, you could probably tell me what those five sermons are uh, better than I could since you just recently read through the book. <laughs> Man, you, you say that this heaven and hell, um, is, is it 39 and 40 because one is preached earlier in the day? Okay. And the one is preached later in the day? So is that it's how it works? one sermon. Okay. But uh, it, it was issued... Oh, in the newspapers, as two parts. Gotcha. Yeah, I, you say he was 21 when he delivered this. Yes. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. What, um, what are some of the... I know you end the book on some of the takeaways for the local church. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to comment on that? I know when you wrote it, you actually made a comment about even the... COVID restrictions and, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, should show some of the context of when you wrote this. Yeah. Well, little did I know I, I would be writing my dissertation in a time when the world would uh, not be at its healthiest. Mm-hmm. Uh, pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one silver lining of the pandemic or the perceived pandemic, whatever your stance is on that, so that it forced churches to realize that they don't need their building to worship, that the church is not the building, but the churches themselves gathered together and covenanted together in order to worship the triune holy God of the universe. And I think a good thing to come of it is that a lot of preachers and pastors and evangelists and missionaries got really comfortable at preaching outside. Um, That being said, I remember back when First Baptist Provo having outdoor services uh, we would meet at the local park here pretty close to the church and uh, there would always always be people at the park when we met because you know as you very well know you know depending on what ward you're assigned to uh, you may not gather with your uh, fellow LDS members till one o'clock in the afternoon. So not every LDS person attends their worship in the morning. Um, and uh, so there would always be people just enjoying their Sunday at the park. And they were curious. They always watched. And uh, it, it was really a blessing to realize, hey, they're getting the gospel too. And that's the main point of open air preaching is, is you want you want to for God's glory, get the gospel in seed form out to as many as possible, in the hopes that God will make His calling and election sure upon those whom He has set His affections upon. Do you have? Um any stories that come to mind in your practice of open-air preaching and how this academic work has influenced that in any way? I mean, I'm sure, 
I, as I was going through your lectures, I'm, I'm sure you felt in a long heritage in a way you may not have outside the Dallas Cowboys stadium that day. Right. And you know how Hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses. For everything that a Christian does, we can have the assurance and joy knowing that there are believers in the Lord Jesus who are enjoying God right now in all his fantastic glory. They are uninhibited by their sin. But before they got to that state, they lived a life full of sin like we did, struggled in the same fallen world we do. And, and now, now that they've run their race and reached glory, uh, they don't sin anymore. And they're enjoying the fullness of him. And they can look back at their earthly lives and see how God got all the glory. And every one of their stories, humanly speaking, is different. But every story has the same goal. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Mm -hmm. Right now, we, uh, we're focused mainly on glorifying God. And we en enjoy Him to a point in this life. But in the next, we'll get to enjoy Him fully. And when, when we preach to others, whether it's in the church setting, indoors, or if it's in the open air, we are saying to sinners and saints both, come, we invite you to come and be a part of the joy and the feast that we're going to have. And... Um, One of the things that really just impacted me is I was so encouraged that I get to partake in this great work that nothing that I do is wasted because I'm in Christ. I'm united with him and to him. And everything matters. So, yeah, that's this broad picture overview of how I was encouraged. I mean, I was encouraged, to put it more simply, keep doing good, keep on fighting. No matter how hard life gets. Yeah. I want to get in, in a minute to, yeah. to your life, your story, and why you're here in Provo. But... Just out of curiosity, since we're here, mm -hmm. what has your experience been like open-air preaching here in Provo? I mean, it, it, I mean, you've been in Texas. Might, maybe it's not as seen as, as weird there. Yeah, Texas, not, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, whether I'm preaching or whether um, I'm passing on tracks, most of... What I get is, uh, I respect you for what you're doing, uh, and uh, I'm so glad you're out here. And then I'll tell them, if you really knew what my message is, would you still say that? And then they get all weird. <laughs> so, because uh, for me... The Christian faith is more about feeling good. Uh, it does feel good. It's a real aspect. It's not all about the feels. You know. Preaching and teaching is knowledge on fire. And, and I find that doing evangelism in general uh, a lot of people aren't willing to engage their mind. You know, it's one of the creepiest things. I've met some brilliant people here in uh, Provo. They're really, really good at what they do. Like, for example, the 
physical therapist that approved me in order to get this wheelchair. She was brilliant. Uh, she knew exactly what to do and say for the application to make sure I get one and was really knowledgeable in the field of the body and all that stuff. And At some point, the conversation switched to religion. And as soon as it did, this dear older lady, she was in her 70s, sounded like a different person. So like a trance came over her, and she started talking about the prophet Joseph Smith. It was just creepy. It's it's really hard to explain what I think is the spiritual battles that a lot of dear precious LDS people face. And the only thing they can resort to is is recited speeches, rehearsed speeches, and then uh, how does this make me feel? Whereas like in the Christian faith, open-air preaching doesn't feel good. You feel like an idiot, <laughs> uh, especially in the 21st century. But you know what? It's not about how I feel. It's about the one and only God getting all the glory. Yeah. Now I'm preaching at you. I'll show no, I, I love it. There's a section in your book, uh, in the chapter Historian and Guide, where Spurgeon says the same thing. He says, uh, the glory of God is, to my mind, the highest conceivable end. It certainly is the chief end of my being. And then you comment to Spurgeon, personal soul winning was, quote, spreading abroad the glory of God. Spurgeon knew that when believers evangelize the lost, God receives the glory, especially when conversions occur. It's just, yeah, good stuff. What, why, why does Spurgeon matter today i i think on, on one hand and maybe this can be a two-part question on one hand for creedal christianity right which is this term that i can't i can't even remember how it came up but um with brendan and, and me is kind of a cause on the podcast recognizing we have our distinctions but you know when we see the nicene creed that's the faith that's the faith of the bible right mm -hmm. um why, on one hand, should creedal Christians that aren't particular Baptist or or even <laughs> Presbyterian or you know just say they're Lutheran or some someone else, maybe there's Roman Catholic listening, why should they care about Spurgeon today? And on the other hand, why should those of your own tradition go back to him still? Yep. Spurgeon was a man of conviction. And in 21st century America, we don't know what conviction is anymore, by and large. People fold. I mean, in our context, the LDS are starting to fold on issues of sexual ethics. Um, the current Pope of the, of the Church at Rome has folded on sexual ethics. Sin is celebrated. And, and Spurgeon, in the downgrade controversy, uh, chiefly and most acutely, shows what it means to have a backbone and to metaphorically stand up for what you believe in. And we need more preachers and teachers, missionaries, evangelists, pastors, even lay people to say, no, I will not bow the knee to Baal. I'm going to serve Yahweh and serve him only. And Spurgeon is a good encouragement what it looks like to do that when every one of your commonsensical alarms is going off and saying, why would you do that, you dummy? You know, he could have stayed in the Baptist Union and got along to get along, but he didn't. And you see conviction not only in his life, but in his preaching. 
Um, by, by and large, he held the Nicene Christianity. I say by and large because there are some sermons and there are some statements within sermons where if you read them, you're like, yeah, I'm not sure, um, you know, if that uh, is truly what needs to be said. I don't think you missed the mark. So he's not a perfect man, but he is a convictional man. If I can, if I could give an example, please, of a quote where he's, I, I don't think he is uh, uh, perfect at all. Um, it, it is this. Spurgeon says, It is a sweet thought that Jesus Christ did not come forth without his Father's permission, authority, consent, and assistance. I could misunderstand Spurgeon here. I really need to go back and look at that quote in context again. Um, you know, but... Uh, that really sounds like uh, eternal functional subordination stuff. For our listener, will you explain? That? Yeah, so eternal functional subordination essentially says that Jesus Christ, in his deity before incarnation, so eternity past, you could think of it that way, always submitted to the Father and saw the Father as an authority over him. Mm. And that classically and historically cannot be the case because of the, another doctrine uh, that's called inseparable operations. So in the essence of, of the divine being of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What one does, they all do in their essence. So, so there can't be any sort of hierarchy within the Trinity. Uh, the Father's not the top dog, so to speak, and the Son and the Spirit are in any sense lesser. And subordination, in the sense of divinity, has to imply a degree of, I don't know, lessicity, mm-hmm. lessness, yeah. inferiority. There we go. Yeah. Use the real word. Yeah, but but Philippians 2, right? He emptied himself. Yes. Right. It's not yeah. the Father didn't empty him. Right, right. And the emptying uh, is not that he set aside his divinity. Uh, you know, that's... A term called canonicism. Uh, we don't teach that. But the emptying himself came in his assumption of human flesh. How all that works out, we can never wrap our minds around as finite, unassumed human beings. We are only human in our nature. Jesus Christ, two natures. One being. Yeah. There's this quote you include in your book that I think is very, uh, for those who, especially for those clued into this issue uh, over the past few years, over the impassibility, the immutability of God, this was encouraging. Um, You include this. This is Spurgeon. I shall offer some exposition of my text by first saying that God is Jehovah and he changes not in his essence. And um, so, uh, should I, yeah, let's read the whole thing. We cannot tell you what Godhead is. We do not know what substance that is, which we call God. It is an existence. It is a being. But what that is, we know not. However, whatever it is, we call it his essence, and that essence never changes. The substance of mortal things is ever-changing. Mark you, his essence did not undergo a change when it became united with the manhood. When Christ in past years did gird himself with mortal clay, the essence of his divinity was not changed. So, And he goes on, but that's just so encouraging to see him taking a stand on a confessional point, on a creedal point, 
that all Christianity has historically held in common, at least the informed part of Christianity. Right. Uh, especially when we see it kind of decaying. It has, it's put aside um, by some recently. Saying it's not important. Yeah, whereas I agree um, with Lane Tipton, uh, an LPC scholar. If you give away immutability, it's a different religion. It's a different God. Yep. Um, and in fact, uh, Spurgeon does go on to cite the James, was it James 1.17, um, the God, the Father of lights. Notice, it's, it's noting God, the Creator, and then says, with whom there is no variableness, neither the shadow of change. Mm. Even in creating... God Himself changes not. Just so there's there's an example that really stood out to me of of Spurgeon, the lowercase C Catholic. And then you include a quote also to throw this on the other hand, right? This robust particularity as well, where he says, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist, but I am if I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So there's the particularity. There's the, right, of his um, robust confessionalism. Right. Um, so anyway, just, yeah, thank you for that. This is a good book. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm glad you found it helpful. Really. Yeah. When, when you pre, I just have to ask this. Um, when you preach, when you like prepare your sermons, do you see yourself as a student of Spurgeon? Maybe maybe that's an unfair question. Just throw at you spontaneously. I'm just curious. Not in the sense like I don't consult Spurgeon for every sermon. I got gotcha. you. Um, you know, I've I, I studied Spurgeon hard and heavy for seven years. Yeah, seven years. So. Um, I, I have been enjoying the not-PhD student life for the past few years and just reading other brothers. Yeah. And, and that's been good. And when, when, I, when I pick up Spurgeon now, he feels more like a friend and a brother and uh, less like academic work. Mm-hmm. Like every time I read Spurgeon... I was also a research assistant uh, for the Spurgeon Library, and I helped with the lost sermons that I mentioned in the other episode. So for my job and for my school, I was reading Spurgeon all the time. And so when when I read Spurgeon back then, my mind immediately thought, well, I've got to write that book you've got in your hands there. (laughs) And uh, it started out as a dissertation proper, uh, there's a few minor things that are changed to make it into book form. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's been nice to, over the past year or so be able to go back to Spurgeon, think of him as a brother to be encouraged by and to learn, be learning from. Uh, but uh, it was very much tied to academic work for me. Mm. Uh, for seven years. Right, right. So, so yeah, I just needed to take a break and study other people like uh, Craig Carter, Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finally have time to watch Jason Wallace's video. <laughs> uh, thing, things like that. So, and have you heard him preach? Have you heard him preach once? Man, he's good. Yes, he's very he's good. A good preacher. Yes. I hope. I don't even know if he's going to listen to this, but I didn't pay me to say that, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ed, I, I want to spend some time at the end here with your story, how you end up um, here in Provo. Why Provo? Why Mormonism? Why FBC Provo? But where did you start? Mm. You know, for those who don't know, let's let's talk about you for a minute. <clears throat> yeah, so... So if you haven't gathered, then probably made some jokes about me being disabled. Uh, we don't hate disabled people on this podcast. No. Uh, I make those jokes because I am disabled. I have several palsy, and uh, if we had video capabilities, you, you would see my ugly mug sitting in an electric wheelchair. Um, I do not have the ability to walk. 
I was raised by my grandparents, my grandmother and my step-grandfather. They were like my parents. They raised me since birth. Um, and um, you know how a lot of folks, Skyler will say, as far back as I could remember, you know, those that have homosexual sin, though. So, like, as far back as I can remember, you know, I was attracted to the same sex. Well, for me, as far back as I could remember, I had a fascination with things that are dark, with things that are demonic. I have no idea where that fascination came from. Uh, when I was a little kid, Halloween was my favorite holiday, and uh, not Christmas. Although I still enjoyed, you know, getting a Nintendo 64 and other assorted things at Christmas time. I had a particular fascination uh, with dark and demonic things. was not put there by my grandparents. I did not know where it came from, but it was there. And um, as far back as I can remember, I remember I would scare my Grandparents, they were nominal Christians, C and E, Christmas and Easter. And um, uh, they, I remember <laughs> my, my grandfather, his name was Don, my step-grandfather that raised me. Uh, Don would, uh, would say, son, why are you fascinated with the devil? You know, that's not good, right? I remember one time that, had a local Baptist pastor come out and talk to me, and and um, you know that didn't <laughs> uh, do what they had hoped. Um, I'm sure he got me to pray some sort of prayer. I don't really remember, but it didn't do anything. Um, and then they would always ship me off to VBS during the summers, vacation Bible school. For those of you that don't know, the LDS have a form of that, like vacation Bible school. I, it's for little kids. I, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not familiar with vacation Bible school okay. either. Well, it's it's a program every summer for kiddos that a lot of churches do. Uh, we've done it here in the past, and uh, I never liked it because all the activities presuppose. Uh, you could sing and dance, and <laughs> all happy clappy, and, and presuppose you wanted to do those things. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do that as about as much as I wanted to put my face in a meat grinder. So, <laughs> so you know, there, there, there was that aspect going on. Um, and I didn't like it. But I went every summer just about because my grandparents made me. And fast forward to 2004, it's about 14 years old, uh, both of my grandparents died. <laughs> Pretty close to one another, about six months apart. My grandmother died first, 2004. Six months later, my grandfather died step-grandfather, both from, from cancer, lung cancer. They were chronic smokers, chain smokers of cigarettes. And, and um, well, they did not live a healthy lifestyle. So all of that took them, you know. And my mother, my biological mama, my grandmother's daughter, um, uh, came from the Dallas-Fort Worth area up to the Texarkana, Texas area where I lived to finish raising me and get me through high school. And so she did that. But I got so angry uh, over my grandparents' death. Uh, I was uh, uh, starting to dabble more deeply in my fascination with dark things and the demonic things. And weird things would happen to me, Skylar, like sleep paralysis, you know, seeing, seeing 
shadowy things of the night and having interactions with those. And, you know, I, I think I was visited by the greys a couple times, if you know what that is, like extraterrestrial, hmm. which I, I think they're demons now, but, but uh, I still remember that. It scared me, but at the same time, I was fascinated. So it was both emotions going on. And that was a thing from, from about 14, 15, all the way to uh, 16. Um, it's when I first came in contact with the gospel that God used to save me. Even being in a small Texas town, I... Uh, Met this young man. His name's Ryan. Uh, Ryan, not listen to this. As a matter of fact, hello, Ryan. Um, uh, he he um, would share the gospel with me. He was a freshman. I was a junior, and he would always talk about Jesus. and And uh, he invited me to church to play my instruments. Um, I play euphonium and trombone. Try to. And sometimes get some notes right. Sounds good to me. Well, uh, thank you, Skyler. I love the euphonium. Yes. Which I didn't even know existed until you, by the way. Oh, well, well praise uh, God for but, that. Wow, it's a beautiful instrument. Well, God is good, isn't he? Yes. But, I w- but uh, so he invited me to First Baptist Church of Hooks, Texas, to play my my instruments in the church orchestra. So I did, but I had to stay and listen to the preaching. God used that preaching, the point preaching of Brother Roy Ford to save my soul. And uh, I don't remember what the sermon was about, but it wouldn't leave me. And about two weeks later, I'll never forget uh, lying in my bed, I couldn't go to sleep. It was probably about two in the morning. Something just clicked. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I believe this stuff. And uh, life has never been the same since. That was in 2006. Well, I graduate high school in 2008. I go on to get a Bachelor of Arts in Music at Henderson State University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. I did that, and that was that was uh, the hardest degree uh, out of all my education. And then, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the other podcast, I d- did an MDiv in Biblical Languages from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's where I met Taylor Callen now pastors in upstate New York and uh, Horkin Baptist Church. Wonderful preacher, sweet congregation. Uh, I've preached there once. And then I also preached, you don't like this, Skyler. Uh, while I was there, he worked me ragged up in upstate New York. I preached like uh, uh, four different churches. One of which was a conservative Presbyterian church. Oh, nice. OPC uh, or? PCA. PCA. But they awesome. were old school. They yeah, sung I like PCA. Yep, yep. They were old school PCA. They sung hymns and stuff. So Love it. So, yeah, didn't kick me out. And uh, the pastor was out of town. And uh, he messaged me on Facebook saying it listened and how much he appreciated the sermon. So so after that, I made fun of Jason because I always thought Jason's church would be the first <laughs> Presbyterian church I would preach in, but it wasn't. Uh, Maybe it'll just be the first OPC church. There you go, there you go. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, I love Jason Wallace. Uh, let the listeners understand and know that. So uh, he's a dear, dear brother. Um, and um, so that being said, though, um, uh, did my MDF at Midwestern um, did a THM in preaching 
or sorry, MDivin, the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, did a Master of Theology in Preaching there as well. And then I went to Kansas City, Missouri, did a Master of Theology in Pedagogy, and then a Ph.D. in Historical Theology uh, through Midwestern as well. So 13 years of education all in all. Wow. Um, I've thought about, maybe I shouldn't say this on air, but I've thought about uh, going back to get a master's in music, um, which, um, you know, I've even thought about BYU, but then again, I like like stuff like that. (laughs) Sitting right over there, I do enjoy my coffee. So, so, you know. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So it was at Southwestern during my MDiv that I got my first exposure to here. Taylor and I, uh, after our first year at Southwestern, him working on his bachelor's, me on my MDiv degree, we both ended up coming out to Utah to help with a with a, a church plant and do evangelism for the summer. And while we were uh, in Utah for the summer, uh, we really realized that we had some very practical methodological disagreements with the church planner, and we obeyed his wishes. They met in the evenings. He didn't really care for open-air preaching and asked us not to do that. Mm-hmm. And so we said we would not. Uh, we just didn't realize how deep disagreement was but we obeyed his wishes because he was the church planner and we were just helping via evangelism and uh, they met in the evenings at his house in Orem and then in the mornings we figured well we don't have a place to go Uh, why don't we go to First Baptist Provo in the mornings so Taylor and I for just about an entire summer, late May to late July, went to First Baptist in the mornings on Sundays. And then in the evenings, we went to the church plant. Unfortunately, that church plant is no longer with us. Uh, they dissolved uh, during the COVID season. Mm. Um, but uh, that being said... Uh, we found Russ Robinson and the First Baptist Church of Provo to be much more accommodating to open their preaching and just street evangelism in general. So I said, uh, if I were to ever do ministry again in Utah, it would be through the First Baptist Church of Provo. So Russ and I really struck up a beautiful friendship and... Uh, I ended up coming out here four more times. Little did I know that the fifth and final time, I think I got my number right there, uh, I would be living out here full-time during ministry. And one of the things that really blows my mind is when, when I came here in 2014, I didn't realize, Taylor and I didn't realize there was a handicap ramp going up into the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So Taylor was trying to pull me up those big <laughs> steps. And Lance, the deacon, was like, no, son. You know, there's a ramp right here. If you've ever heard of Lance, you know, that's what it sounds like. And uh, uh, dear brother Lance is. Lance and Katie Cooper both. But when I uh, rolled into the uh, auditorium, I never thought that this would be uh, my first and hopefully only church that I've ever pastored. Because that was in uh, June of 2014, so basically a decade ago at this point, a few months shy of a decade ago. Wow. 
Wow. I didn't realize it was that long. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's funny to see how the LDS have changed since the first time I came out. They seemed a lot more across the board conservative than they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, that being said, that's my story. Interesting. You're now elder here. Yep. When, when was that? Do you, Not to put you on the spot, but uh, I, guess I, am. I guess I am. Let's see. That was a uh, couple years ago or? No, it was in... It was in November of last year, so so I, I, I okay. was uh, called officially as one of our pastors. Um, yeah, we use pastor and elder interchangeably at, at First Baptist. So pastor, elder, whatever you want to call it. I get to be uh, in full-time ministry, and so that's a blessing. When, when Do you remember the first time you encountered Mormonism? Or roughly, first time? Mm, I was like a theological idea, but my first real relationship with the Mormon was back before I was saved. Hmm. Uh, I used to take lessons during the summer, periodically, sporadically, uh, with Brian Bowman, who is a world-famous euphonium player. Uh, Dr. Bowman is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and one of the kindest men you'll ever meet. But still, uh, doctrinally and theologically, that's where he's at. And uh, we've, we've gotten to talk about religion. I've gotten to share the true historic gospel with him. Uh, just a couple years ago, uh, he came to BYU and and uh, the tuba euphonium professor there invited me to play, and he I played on the concert and conducted, and, and uh, he and I got to have lunch together, and John Cower was there as well. Wow. And so uh, I told John, you're getting to meet the world's best euphonium player today. And that didn't starstruck him as much as it would have <laughs> But... Uh, Wow. Yeah, but yeah, so so you get out here and you start having conversations. Like, at what point did you start? I guess experiencing that divide when talking about, I don't know, the Bible or who God is, or uh, for me, it, it's really two things. Um, number one, their conception of who and what deity is is so different both on the who and the what of deity. Uh, they don't believe he is, as Anselm said, uh, the greatest being that could be conceived. He's not in the category of otherness. Uh, he's just simply an exalted essence, the same as we are, but just uh, uh, more progressed, as it were. So there's that, and that's the biggest thing. And then secondly, but not too far behind it at all, is a lack of assurance, a lack of having the joy of Jesus' righteousness can be your very own. And it's all his free gift, one for you at the cross of Christ. And so those two things together make an eternal separation between us and them. Yeah. I don't take joy in saying that. I've had little LDS sisters just break down and start crying. And I don't enjoy that. I guess I could smile more because people always say I look angry. But, you know, it's just my face. <laughs> so People that know me, though, know I... Love to laugh and joke around. Except Skyler. I'm very serious about Skyler. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> it'll be as funny as the company you keep, right? Yep, that's right. Was there anything else you wanted to, to say today? Be convictional. Uh, be kind. Be gracious. Be humble. Have theological humility. 
and if you're going to tell people that they need the true Jesus, do so as Paul instructed us, uh, even with tears. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not better than an LDS person. Spurgeon never thought he was better than the Mormonites. He wanted them to be saved. I do too. And please pray for Utah. She needs a a, a revival. Not a revival, but a revival. She needs to be awakened. So if you have a heart for LDS, come join the work out here. Uh, If you believe in believer's baptism... First Baptist Provo uh, would love to have you if you found yourself with Baptist distinctives. And if you uh, are a baptizer of infants, I think you're graciously uh, incorrect, but there's a church I will not hesitate uh, recommending you to, and that's in Magna, Utah. (laughs) I know some good brothers there, too. (laughs) So, yeah, Christ Presbyterian Church. And we, we love those brothers. They love us. And the uh, Christian community in Utah is really sweet. Yes. True Christian community. It's, it's yeah. definitely. When we call each other brother, it means something for us. Oh, absolutely. It's not a generic, empty term. And, you know, it's, it's a badge of honor there. God has set his affections upon you and called you to himself. You were once a child of the devil. You've been made a child of light. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And your whole outlook is different. Uh, You don't have to wonder whether the Father is well pleased with you. He is. And it's all because of what Christ has done. Every Yoda. Amen. Now I'm preaching again. Ah, love it. Are there um, on Spurgeon beside your book? What would you recommend for listeners who want to learn more? Mm, well, <coughs> the Dalamore biography is a classic. All Dalamore, published by Banner Truth. Um, Jeff Chang has written a wonderful study of, of Spurgeon's pastorate. If you type in Jeff with a G, G-E-O-F-F, Chang, um, uh, that's a wonderful book um, on, on Spurgeon's pastorate. And then um, there's a wonderful, a thick academic biography uh, called Living by Revealed Truth by Tom Nettles. That's wonderful. He really delves into the sword and the trial a lot to uncover a lot of gems in there, shedding light on Spurgeon's pastoral ministry. Um, uh, He's also got a smaller continuation of that work that came out about almost a decade later called The Child is the Father of, of the Man that is much smaller and uh, that work uh, covers more and is a supplement to living by revealed truth. Um, and then what I would also recommend is just read Spurgeon himself. You know, don't only read secondary sources. Uh, go online, go to Spurgeon.org, uh, read those archived sermons. Um, you know, Make it a goal to read a Spurgeon sermon a week. You know, I read much more than that when I was doing my PhD studies. It was like five sermons a day, which is a lot. But uh, you'll find you'll always come away encouraged, and Lord willing, you'll love Jesus more by the end of his sermon. So just read Spurgeon himself. Read the sermons, read this autobiography, you know, drink from the drink from the well. 
and then supplement with other sources, secondary sources. On uh, the topic, since this is um, the Distinctive Christianity podcast, in terms of deeper understanding of Christianity, maybe even with Mormonism in mind, are there just books generally that you'd recommend um, in terms of deepening our understanding of what Christianity is? Yes. Uh, so the so the the first book that I would recommend is the London the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. If you're a Baptist, the second if you're Presbyterian, just to honor my brother here, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, you'll find that there's many similarities in those documents. Um, Read the Nicene Creed, read the Apostles' Creed, uh, read the Athanasian Creed. Um, you know, get to where you know know those well. And then the, the second thing I would say after that is pick up a good systematic theology. Um, uh, Stephen Wellham just came out with a First volume of a multi-volume set. I've heard it's excellent. Matthew Barrett has a systematic theology that's coming out with Baker. Um, on, on the Baptist side, both of those I've heard are going to be very good. Um, on the Presbyterian side, well, they've been writing systematics for a long time. <laughs> uh, so Baptists need to play catch-up. <laughs> Um, and don't don't feel like you have to include us. I I appreciate it though. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome. This has been great. I think I'm going to end by reading a paragraph. It's mostly Spurgeon, but this is in your book under the heading "The Reality of Heaven." Oh, okay. Uh, I was struck by this quote, and to the side I wrote "Beatific Vision." Hmm. Just as Spurgeon was convinced of hell for the damned, Spurgeon was equally convinced of the reality of heaven for the redeemed. But heaven for Spurgeon was not streets paved with gold, but rather seeing the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, The very glory of heaven is that we shall see him, that same Christ who once died upon Calvary's cross, that we shall fall down and worship at his feet, nay more, that he shall kiss us with the kisses of his mouth and welcome us to dwell with him forever. There we go. Thank you, Ed. You're welcome. Well, you've been listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast. Hope to see you again soon.